Hey there, it's Raleigh. I want to catch you before this episode to tell you about our new and improved bonus podcast, More Mercy. Each week, I break down a MercyCast episode and show how it not only intersects with Scripture, but how it impacts our daily lives. This short devotional episode is only $3 a month, which is like $4 less than a cup of coffee at the Mermaid Place. To access it, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes. Remember, no matter what you're going through, there's always more mercy. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Have you ever had something that was a burden for you, something that you were super passionate about, but when you attempted to do it, you started hitting wall after wall after wall? In these moments, it's very easy to think that maybe I'm not called to do this. Maybe it's too hard. And then you're wrestling with, well, how hard is too hard? And then people are telling you, well, maybe you should go into another field. But deep down, there's this passion. There's this almost prophetic burden that you have a message and you need to take it to the people. That you, to be who you truly are, need to do this thing. Helen was on a volunteer visa for the first three years of her time with Exodus Cry. To do this, she raised her own support from England since she wasn't allowed to be paid in the U.S. Through this experience, she learned that serving those most vulnerable and those who are sexually exploited was her passion, but she'd hit a wall. It was as if she would never be able to fully realize it because she couldn't get a working visa in the United States. It was like she was so close yet so far. Today, I am joined by Helen Taylor the Vice President of Impact at Exodus Cry, a nonprofit committed to abolishing sex trafficking and breaking the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation. Helen, welcome to the MercyCast. Thank you so much. It's great to see you and thanks for having me. Helen, I've known you for several years just through the anti-trafficking movement. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like this is your origin story. You have done Mm -hmm. so much in the movement, but... I don't think I knew this. Yeah, I know. Well, it's it's one of those things that it only comes up when it comes up, you know, of, of people being like, well, how, how was it moving to the States? And if, if the topic of a visa comes up, because I moved to work full time for Exodus Cry, like I was giving all, all my time full time. I didn't have a side job. I couldn't have a side job. I was literally on a volunteer visa that was one year at a time. And I had to go back to England every six months to even reset it raise support from the UK. But every single year I I thought this could be my last year here. It felt like a miracle to even be able to go back and renew the visa year after year. And some of the staff ex just cry and uh, the lawyers were like, this is very unusual to get a business visa two years in a row or three years in a row. So at the end of every year, I would say to my roommates, I don't even know if I'll be back in the new year. Like I'm, I'm hoping in faith that I will be. And imagine like three years in your mid-20s doing that and you are more and more like putting roots down and building relationships and realizing that this is the thing you want to do the rest of your life. Like I remember thinking I'm loving doing this work for free for three years. Nothing makes me come alive more or feel more connected to a sense of calling and purpose than serving at risk or trafficking victims and survivors and I just, I wanted to do this the rest of my life and I felt very aligned with the mission of Exodus Cry. So it wasn't like a, we'll just go back to England and find an Exodus Cry equivalent. For me, it was like Exodus Cry was the tribe that I knew I was meant to serve alongside. But all the while I was feeling these conflicting tensions of so much purpose calling and like I'm meant to be here versus there's no way I can be here and I can never be paid. Like one year visas, each year, who can plan their life that way? So much uncertainty and it began to kind of cripple me and this depression creep over me that that would never change. That had to have been difficult. You know, you are so passionate about what you do. And even in those moments when you're not being paid, you do it for the joy of it. And now you don't know if you're going to be able to continue doing it. You've been almost walking on eggshells, not knowing really when the next shoe's going to drop. 
and you're trying to be present, but you don't know if you're going to be able to continue to do it. And how did you process that when you were realizing I may never get a working visa? It was very tough and sad. I I was essentially an intern for three years. My supervisor was very, very generous and kind and didn't call me that, but essentially I was her intern for three years. And so it was very humbling in that I'd before working at Exodus Cry, I'd been a, working as an art therapist for an amazing organization in Cambodia and had helped build some of their, their programs and trained their social workers in art therapy. I, I did an art therapy diploma in London before doing that. So I, my journey in the anti-trafficking movement started in the aftercare lane, but I very quickly realized outreach was where I felt the, the most called to at that time. And so I moved to the States. My first three years at Exodus Cry were hundred percent outreach and helping them build and pioneer online outreach programs. So I was right in the midst of a very exciting time and in building something, but yet I just, I don't know, it, it felt very much like I'm, I'm not building this career for me. I'm just serving whatever needs to be done. So it was three years of like the most humble service. And I, I know Exodus Cry, if, if they could have gotten me a working busy earlier, they, they could have. So it wasn't like there was a labor exploitation situation going on at all. But I, I think in those three years, it formed a lot of character and set me up for a lifetime of gratitude where I have zero entitlement to even doing this work. Like it feels like such a blessing, such a privilege that I, I get to work in this field, that I get to serve in this field. And I never take a day for granted. So sometimes the wisdom of the Lord of like the short-term pain for the long-term gain, even in these seasons that he allows us to go through. And at the time it can feel like, God, you're such a kind, loving father. How can you um, like, like, where is the breakthrough? And the deferred hope of year after year, but all the while he's looking back in the light of eternity, knowing that actually he's, enabling you to be set up for a lifetime of pursuing your calling from a place of of really valuing it and not entitlement, which which I think is is one thing that can really drive people away from their calling and create bitter roots of entitlement or offense. You talk about this idea of short-term pain for long-term gain. And this is something that we can only understand in hindsight, right? We don't see it in the moment. We don't we don't have this epiphany in the moment where we're like, Oh yeah, this is probably just this. You know how the scripture talks about these light and momentary afflictions. These things that we're going through that are horrendous. They're terrible. They're breaking our hearts. They're changing our lives. And the scriptures call them light and momentary because in view of what God is doing in his redemptive plan, it's but a blip. And so in that short-term pain, did you feel that God had abandoned you? I've never felt God has abandoned me. Like I I have such a deep certainty of his goodness and kindness. So I never felt he'd abandoned me, but I felt that like, where are you, God? Like, will this ever change? How can I have faith? Like I felt this tension of him inviting me into having faith for a breakthrough, but it seemed impossible on paper. And I was, that was almost a painful surrender to have faith um, and trust him for something that, really looked impossible. And I went for a period of crying myself to sleep almost every night for like wow. a few months. But I just remember and reading back from through my journals at that time, feeling so hopeless and just sad of like, I've put everything into the last three years and will it all be for nothing? Will I have to just go back to England and, and walk away from everything I've I've built my life on? And I mean, because of the field that we're in, we're exposed to some of the worst suffering off the scale. Absolutely. And so I, I even use words of, of pain and trauma and suffering loosely in, in comparison to the actual like genuine trauma and horror and despair that people in the sex industry are, are coping with every day. And so even for people, I don't know if you get this question, like, how do you do this work? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you cope with the trauma or the dangers and I'm always like, it's, it's so much more dangerous for the women. It's so much more trauma, like my, my, my trauma, my trauma compared to their trauma. But when, when you were asking me about a time in my life that I'd, I'd hit a wall or I felt a sense of despair, I think that was a period of my life that came to mind of just crying yourself to sleep every mm. night for a few months. 
that begins to verge on despair. I remember Googling up symptoms of depression and being like, Helen, no, that's not what God has to do. Like, choose hope, choose faith. Do not let depression have a, a diagnosis on your life. But I, I just felt sad every day. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't see any hope for change. And I, I've heard someone say that the truest frustration is your goals being blocked. And so if you have a yes. real desire to go somewhere and have a goal, but there's a block, there's a wall you cannot see on the other side. And I just know that was how I felt in that season. And you, you rightly define frustration as our goals being blocked, right? Like it's, you want this, but you're being frustrated. You can't get to it. Something's keeping you from that. And it's very easy to fall into despair. I think that is just the perfect picture of what we experience in those moments where we start just questioning maybe ourselves or just questioning just why it's happening. But I love how you were like, but I still trust God to be a benevolent God. I still believe that he is loving, that he is kind. And I think that is a beautiful place to kind of be your pedestal for faith, like to put your faith in a God that you know loves you and you know he is kind, you know he is faithful. And then you're like, okay, so I know that to be true. And so because I know that to be true, I think I can understand what's going on here. And something that you brought up several times that I, I would be remiss if I missed this is you keep bringing up how your experience helped you kind of fight entitlement. Can you dig into that for me? I know there's a, a bit of a romanticized view of, of calling and especially in like the millennial and Gen Z generations of really wanting to have a, a calling and a, a life that has purpose. And these are really great ideals. And I love that. I, I mean, probably in America more than any other country, the idea of the American dream, but the kingdom version of that is like, what's the God dream? What is God's calling over your life? And more than any other country I've ever been to, there's that like, rhetoric even of what's like dreaming big with God and dreaming of the impossible. Mm. I think that it can sometimes become almost a, a thing of, I, I have the right to this, or if, if God has promised me this, or I, I believe I deserve this. And if, if life doesn't go your way or it's hard, like my first three years here in the States had a, a ton of challenges and a ton of really rough and tough things that happened and times of me like wailing on the floor, crying out to the Lord and wondering if I should go back to, to England as well. So I'm holding this tension of I, I feel really called to be here and it's also really hard. But I think there's this temptation of the grass can be greener on the other side or if you feel truly called to do this work in fighting trafficking, I think that that is to be protected at all costs. And if you found your why, then like the, the temptation from the enemy is to take people off course through, through bitterness and offense, wow. through like moral failure of falling into sexual sin or anger or like at that and that bringing shame that people self disqualify. But something I felt I've seen more recently in recent years, I think is entitlement and not Whereas I feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to work and serve from a place of I'm serving him first and foremost, not an individual, not an organization, not myself. I am serving Jesus. He is my why. He is my motivation for why I'm doing this every day. I live for the audience of one and I'm working and serving. If God is your motivation, then the highs of ministry or the discouragements of, of this work don't have the same impact. Your your identity isn't formed by them. It's like you celebrate the wins and the breakthroughs, but your identity isn't attached to them. And similarly, when a survivor you've been assisting goes back to her pimp or a team you're leading ha has a bunch of issues or something that you thought would happen did not happen or whatever the situation is, you don't take it as a personal failure because God calls you to be faithful and present in this work. And that's that's success for me. That's success for us being faithful in the calling and working our absolute hardest and constantly wanting to, to see the breakthroughs and dreaming the big dream, but having our identity forged 
in him alone ultimately. And I know for me that has been such an important foundation and I'm really grateful for the the tough things that happened over the years that have have forged that deep conviction. And when God's faithfulness drives our faithfulness, then we're able to take those really big disappointments and stride. You know, we're able to say, okay, God, you are faithful. You love us. And this was terrible, but I'm coming to you with it. Whether it's a disappointment from without or disappointment from within, maybe in our own trauma, maybe we took a step that we shouldn't have taken, or maybe we struggled here or there. And to know that our identity is in him, that frees us to take a step back and say, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this work. I need to make sure that I'm tended to. I need to make sure that I'm cared for. I need to make sure that I'm in a place where I can continue to shore up my boundaries and get healthy and do whatever I can to continue doing this work because I've seen a lot of people start and then burn out within six months. In another mm-hmm. podcast, I talked to someone who called me while I was in New York and he said, man, I'm really loving what I'm seeing from you, but I have a question. Are you going to be able to do this for 20 years or just two? Because if we're pushing ourselves beyond what we can honestly sustain, we're going to mess up. And there are moments where we get shaky that we do. We need to be tended to. We need to understand that this kind of work does impact us, but it's worth it. And I love how you said when people say, "Well, well, how do you do it? And you're like, well, the people who are actually being exploited are going through something way more. But you also understand, too, you acknowledge that. But sometimes we get a little of that on us as we are caring for vulnerable people. You know, it may excite our own things. It may it may challenge us in deep ways. And, you know, if we mess up, that's okay. Sure. But that points us to the need to heal. That points us to the need to grow and ultimately to depend on Jesus. Would you agree, disagree? Yeah, totally. And I... I would actually say I, I burnt out in six months doing this work in Cambodia and didn't have any understanding or value really of, of self-care or vicarious trauma, or I went into it very bright eyed and blindly. Um, and so when I moved to the States 10 years ago, that was something that my, in my first year, I felt God really speak to me very strongly about, about self-care and, and longevity and sustainability of like, if I called you to do this work for the next 30, 40, 50 years with me, I want you to have a vision for that and implement wisdom in ways that will set you up to do this well and not burn out again like in Cambodia. Because I I felt almost a big fear that I was going to just, the exact same thing would happen and six months in I'd have to return early to England anyway and throw the towel in. So, yeah, I actually wrote a whole training manual on doing outreach and there's a chapter in there on the importance of, of self-care. And so I think, you know, we're talking all about the, the blood, sweat and tears and hardship and suffering that you can walk through too. But I think that's not to be romanticized either. And God's heart for us, like Isaiah 58 is one of my favorite passages on this whole topic, because it's like the, the chapter of those who are called to enter the, the, the fast of fighting injustice and sharing our food with the hungry. And it like lays out this vision for caring for the vulnerable, but then all these promises that come afterwards about being like a well-watered garden whose leaves will not fail. And in a sun-scorched land, like acknowledging all the pressures, but the wisdom of that is a, a Sabbath-centered lifestyle. So I, that's a whole topic that I'm extremely passionate about actually is like, how do we sustain this work? even working with the most ugly, dark, traumatizing subject matter and traumatized individuals, how do we stay anchored to hope and doing this work with a bright and vibrant spirit that we, where our faith isn't sacrificed, our life and family isn't sacrificed, our own sense of personal value isn't, isn't sacrificed. Yeah, I think it, it can be hard. You might value this, but if you're in a working culture where your colleagues or your organization you're working for doesn't value that, it can be really challenging. And I feel very lucky and blessed to work alongside a team that we all value this. We just recently did a a retreat in Lake Tahoe where we invited about 80 people to come and it was like 
training them in and getting started in the anti-trafficking movement, but also some people who've been doing this work for decades who are on the brink of burnout or were needing that real refreshment. And a lot of people come into these things with this conference mentality. They're expecting like teaching from morning to midnight. And we did have a lot of teaching, but so much of it was about connecting to your own story, finding the why behind why are you doing this? And because if you get that part right of knowing why you're doing this work, who has called you to it and how he feels about you, then you will immensely value the dignity in, in human life if you have connected and have a deep revelation of the way that God values you. So we just wanted to sort of even set that up in the beautiful retreat location of, of Lake Tahoe and almost showcase this as a culture of everything we do is from that overflow of prayer and a, a strong connection with God. And there's lots of people in the anti-trafficking movement who, who don't have a faith. And I think this movement is, is strong in that people from all different political or faith-based backgrounds or cultural backgrounds can come together over this, you know, just, just, just to say that. But I, I felt so happy to see us showing the culture that we've created and the way that that was really speaking to others who, who'd never heard anything about self-care, who'd never heard messages about the God of love and how he feels about them and their identity being central to doing this work effectively long-term. Well, Helen, we were talking about this earlier, how I've experienced my own burnout. And there was a moment where I was like, is this it? Like, do I even have anything else to give? And I had Mm -hmm. to spend time just really healing and coming back to that passion that I had in the beginning and allowing myself to be tended to by others and by God. And I think so much of self-care is this allowing yourself to be vulnerable to such an extent where others can speak into your life and you resist the urge to be defensive or prove yourself and allow God to speak into your life where, again, you resist that urge to say, no, this is what I want. You know, it's like, okay. And I think in doing that, healing starts to happen because things start getting dealt with, things start getting brought to the surface. And it is hard, but I have met so many of our colleagues, of our peers, who are amazing human beings. And then all of a sudden, they burn out and they don't stop being amazing human beings, but they exit stage left of the anti-trafficking movement. They can't do it anymore. And a lot of them may have bitter feelings. They may be hurtful, they may be angry, they may just be feeling broken. But it happens when our passion leads us farther than our foundation. And we need people speaking into our lives. We need to be at the foot of the cross. We need to be listening to what God has for us. And I think in doing that, that is a healthier approach. You, you basically, you talk about how this formative experience that you went through really opened you up to have more of a passion for outreach. Tell me a little bit more about the outreach that you do through Exodus Cry and kind of what you've done around the country. So we, like 10 years ago, I'm sure you'll remember Backpage was really exploding and we, we were doing street outreach to um, the women on the streets. But just saw so could much you explain, online. I'm sorry. Could, could you explain is? what Backpage is for some of our listeners who may may not know? Yeah. So Backpage opened up after Craigslist removed a lot of their adult ads. Operates in a similar way to Craigslist, or at least it did on the surface. It would advertise categories for for reselling secondhand items, but pretty much in every city, ninety percent of all of the that the content on this website was in the adult section or under quote unquote escorting. And what was uncovered was that surprise, surprise, many of these individuals being sold on Backpage were, were underage and were trafficking victims. And they had no way of, of vetting these ads and they were monetizing them, making huge amounts of money. And they were seized by the FBI. I think the trial actually, oh my gosh, well, as of recording, August 29, the trial is meant to start today. All these years later of the executives of Backpage, the trial has been delayed for several years and it got delayed again recently, but it's meant to start today. 
So there was a film about that called I Am Jane Doe, if you've never seen that. It was on Netflix for a long time, it might still be, and that detailed the case of a lot of mothers of trafficking victims who'd been sold on Backpage, brought legal cases against the website and really challenged Section 230 and challenged Mm -hmm. this idea that the website shouldn't be held accountable for all the money that they were making off the back of trafficking victims, underage girls, pimps and traffickers selling humans on their website. And um, it was a, a definitely a kind of a, a breakthrough landmark case that ended up with the foster sister laws passing. Anyway, watch I Am Jane Doe. It's a really great film that details all of that. But at the time, we were just seeing, okay, there's, I remember actually going on, on the back page in New York one day, counting how many ads, some of them would, would have been repeat ads that got bumped up a couple of times in the day, but over 3,000 ads in New York City on one day on back page. And it was just booming. And we thought, okay, why don't we text the women sold on this website and see if any of them need any assistance or can meet us in a fast food restaurant? Or we didn't really know, are we going to have to get guys to call up and do fake undercover dates? How is this going to work? And we just felt like, well, let's just start by telling, texting these women, telling them that we're a group of friends who really want them to know that there's services available, that there's people that care about them. We'd love to meet with them and give them a $50 grocery store gift card and a, a beauty bag with makeup. And and for some of them that either were like brave enough or desperate enough or had enough flexibility to either leave their hotel room or leave the pimp, because the, the majority of women we ever met on Backpage had pimps and had gotten into this underage. So even if they weren't under the... 24-7 control of a pimp, they had been at one time, or their pimp trusted them enough that they weren't going to run away to let them go to a fast food restaurant. So we would meet them at a McDonald's or an Arby's or any fast food that was near the hotel where they were and give them this gift. And we'd, we'd have time with them like on the streets. There's so many other dynamics taking place and the pimps are often close by. You don't have all that long to build connections. Same in the strip clubs. Um, but online, we found that we were able to go a lot deeper with the women that we were meeting with and really hear their situation and figure out if they were interested, an action plan of how we could come alongside them and empower them in in what they were wanting to, to do in getting out of this situation. So that was 10 years ago, starting this like online texting program. And at the time, we didn't know anyone else who was doing it. I know lots of other groups now do outreach in that way. But yeah, we would go to strip clubs every week. And I've done outreach in pornography conventions, illicit massage parlors, where I trained some Chinese women to do outreach with me because I really wanted the women to have people who spoke to them in their native language. We started a weekly jail program for at-risk women in jail and did an anonymous survey where many of them, like about a third, had had a background in the sex industry. And many of them wanted to go into some kind of program from jail and not go back right back to this situation that they came out of. So our question was, where is the sex industry existing and what strategies can we utilize to, to reach these women? If the, if the sex buyers can reach the women, then so can we. Love was our primary agenda. If they wished to exit, then we would be willing to do everything we could to help them with that. But that wasn't like, we would genuinely want to meet with anyone who was interested in meeting with us, even just for them to have an hour of speaking to someone who really cared about them, cared about their well-being, could offer them our resource packet and leave it with them. So I became the vice president a couple of years ago. So I'm st- I still oversee all of our outreaches, but I'm not on the streets and in the strip clubs every week like I used to be. I still do go out on the streets here in Los Angeles with another group, but I know that for me, The longer I've worked with survivors, the longer I've worked with women in outreach, the more passionate I am about prevention. And I don't want a single woman to go through the prostitution. And so you begin to ask the questions of, well, I could help like 50 women out of this, but then as long as there's a thriving demand market, there'll be 50 more vulnerable women that traffickers will recruit right in. And so you begin to think like, I... I have to see a dent made in this industry by the millions. Like what, what is it going to look like in the next 50 years to dismantle the sex trafficking industry, to break the back of it? What are the laws that are 
being passed that are most effective in reducing sex trafficking? What are the best social programs helping women exit and the best models of homes? What, how do we reduce demand? Like, let's study the issue of demand. If demand is the economical force driving this market and pornography is the marketing force behind that market, how do we go after reducing demand and then kind of addressing pornography led to that? But then we realized, well, addressing pornography isn't just addressing the marketing behind demand. Girls are trafficked into the porn industry or videos of trafficking victims are distributed on major online pornography platforms. So there's so much intersection and collusion in this like ecosystem of exploitation. But I think for Exodus Cry, we still do outreaches. We provide trauma therapy to any survivors as well. So we always have that direct service piece. But the the longer long-term vision of the organization and where the questions we're asking are what is it going to take to dismantle sex trafficking and how can we do that the most effectively in the next several decades? Well, and as you were sharing, you basically draw a dichotomy between just doing a few things on the ground where it's important caring for people individually, but it's also important to address the systemic issue of human trafficking because it it really is a catch-all injustice that impacts anyone who is vulnerable, anyone who is marginalized. And so you are going in and you're saying, no, there are some things we need to address. You mentioned how we can create demand. You know, you probably know as well as I do that you'll have conversations with someone and sometimes the person will say things like, well, I thought people in the commercial sex industry, I thought they all chose it. How would you respond to something like that? Because I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. That's kind of what I meant. I'm sure you've heard it just like me, that someone would say that. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes just try and encourage them to take a step back and imagine a day in the life of someone in prostitution. And like, what are we actually talking about when we're saying the sex industry? Because I just want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing and you're not just thinking, well, I mean, the sex industry now includes people taking pictures of their feet and putting them on OnlyFans and, and they're choosing that, right? And I'm like, well, that's, that's this extreme of the pipeline of exploitation and it's still on it. Um, but often they start there and then they quickly head up in this direction. Let's start by just talking about a day in the life of any woman in prostitution who is expected to have sex with like between one and 20 men that they have zero desire for. And so what what's happening during every single encounter is they disassociate or they take substances to, to numb out from that. Because when you have, are forced to have sex or compelled to have sex with someone that you have zero desire for and that money is coercing that, that's a form of exploitation. That's a form of, of paid rape. And the reality of, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in a five-star hotel or in the car on the streets, like most women in prostitution do not get any of the money. 100% of it goes back to the pimp who then may buy them nice clothes and nice handbags. So it looks like they're getting all this flashy stuff, but it's all a a marketing cover to present the type of woman that's marketable to, to buyers or to create a false sense of, I am your caretaker. I give you the life that you're family could never have given you or your father could never have given you this sense of control and I own you. I own the things that you you wear, you you buy. To me, anyone who ever presents that question has never worked directly with women in prostitution. And once you've seen the the scars of the trauma, the absolute havoc that it wreaks in in someone's life, no to me, the first time I ever saw a woman in prostitution, my first instinctive thought was I could be, this was in London, when I was 16 years old, I saw this woman in a red dress in a in an alleyway in a little red light district pocket of London. And my first thought was I could be this like disgusting, perverted, smelly, nasty man. And just because I have a bit of money in my pocket, this gives me power to rape this woman that does not want to have sex Mm -hmm. with me. And I don't know what's compelling her to be in this situation. Maybe she's providing for her kids or she's desperately poor and has no other choice but to survive. In which case, this man should just give her the money and help out a desperate 
person. I didn't know anything about human trafficking at that point, but to me, as clear as day, it was like this. There's a power dynamic taking place here that is inherently unequal. One person has the choice, the agency, the power, and one person does not. And if I mean, Rachel Moran's book "Paid For" is the the survivor memoir that, from the ones I have ever read, broke down that world to me in the most compelling way and bringing me in to the daily reality of a life in prostitution. It is utter exploitation. It is utter slavery and the damage that it brings on women. And so anyone who thinks that a woman with full autonomy, with privilege and education and other options chooses that, and I'm not denying there are a small percentage of of women who do have that privilege and still choose to enter the sex industry. But most in most of those cases, there's a deep history of childhood sexual abuse or dysfunctional relationship with their own sexuality and they've had to use their body and their their sexuality as power and it's a way of trying to get back some kind of form of revenge against men but they always end up losing like it it's never you're never no person in the sex industry is ever empowered through through this lifestyle it is utterly disempowering utterly exploitative utterly damaging and we're assisting survivors who are in therapy, even who've been out years of prostitution, the scars of that cause deep, deep trauma. And so I I don't say all of this to someone who asks, don't they choose it? But I think I just try and like even get them to empathize and actually put their themselves in the shoes of a woman in prostitution for, for a day and be like, would you ever choose that? If not, why? And if, if there's a reason why you wouldn't ever choose that, let's apply it to these women too. And so you're talking about how we can create demand by patronizing those who are prostituted. But you've also mentioned how pornography is part of creating demand. And it's not just because it's showing us something that we may want and then we go and pay for. But many people who are prostituted are forced to be on webcams. They're they're recorded. This is passed through the internet. And so it ending up on websites like Pornhub and your organization has done a lot to really address the exploitative videos of people where they were raped or they were trafficked. They were 15 years old when something was recorded and put on Pornhub and you guys are doing something to push back on that. Could you talk about that? So a few years ago, we began to just see in the media case after case about these non-consensual videos that were on Pornhub and the case, well, you mentioned the case of a 15-year-old girl in Florida who was missing, trafficked, 58 videos of her exploitation were found on Pornhub under a verified account. And so you look at that case and you think, okay, so a trafficker was able to open a verified account with Pornhub and upload 58 videos of an underage missing girl. What kind of verifications are in in place for age or consent on this website. And the Sunday Times in the UK did an investigation on Pornhub, found victims as young as three years old on their website. And so we, we read about these different cases in the media and realized that to upload a video, all they all Pornhub required was an email address. And so our director of abolition at the time, Lila McElwaite, um, was aghast when she realized this. And we just felt like this needs to be exposed. Like at that time, Pornhub had marketed themselves as this like cheeky pop culture, very mainstream porn site. It had billboards in Times Square, New York Fashion Week partnered with them, pop-up shops, places, celebrity endorsements. And it was the most famous well-known porn site by far. And the company that owned Pornhub owned like 80% of all online porn. It was like the giant Goliath owned the monopoly. And my colleague wrote an op-ed saying it's time to shut down Pornhub and kind of laid out the case against them of why this porn site was completely like neglectful and irresponsible, leading to the cases of real victims of trafficking, rape, underage, revenge porn, image-based sexual abuse on their website. And the question is, if, if the most famous porn site is doing that, then all of the others are as well. And that op-ed went viral. It was kind of early 2020. And um, the very next day after it came out, a survivor story by the BBC came out 
um, detailing the story of Rose Kalemba, who mm. um, was also uh, a young teen when videos of her rape were uploaded on Pornhub. And so the the synergy and the providential timing of those two articles released a day apart sparked this like global outrage. And suddenly thousands of articles in the next few weeks were being written about this. And we decided, oh my gosh, we need to like harness the momentum of this moment, start a petition to shut down Pornhub and hold its executives accountable. And this this campaign that we call Trafficking Hub, you know, pretty much self-explanatory, took on a real life of its own and um, hundreds of other organizations signed on in support. It really became a, a movement from starting out as a campaign. And by the end of the year, Nick Christoph from the New York Times reached out. He wanted to write an article about this, his own investigation. And that was like the tipping point moment of mass awareness. It was on the front page. And the credit card companies, Visa and MasterCard, were forced to cut ties with Pornhub days after. And then they, the website deleted 80% of their entire contents, 10 million videos that were unverified. And they blamed Exodus Cry and Nicosi in their statement as why they, when they did that. And we were like, wow, they just gave us the credit for, you know, we, we were hearing from survivors all day that day of, I just checked and my, um, the videos of my exploitation are not on Pornhub anymore in the big delete. So that was like a massive breakthrough, even just for like the brand damage that caused Pornhub and the, the awareness, like, I feel like up until that point, you've been considered a prude if you were challenging pornography in any degree. And now it was like societally, culturally acceptable to challenge porn. And there was this awareness of, oh, there's like real, really abusive content on porn sites. And there's no way to to know if the person behind the screen is being exploited or not. And so I think it really humanized people in the in in, in porn or the reality of these videos of a, a, a rape-themed porn. I mean, firstly, even if that is being acted, do you really think that justifies watching rape-themed porn um, as a genre? But the the knowledge that this might really be a real rape that you're watching. And then us basically realizing that Pornhub had zero and these porn sites had zero age verification for protecting minors from accessing. There's no, not even a click if you're over 18 button, which doesn't even do anything. We need like actual government ID, third party apps to uh, verify age. So we're wanting to really ramp up this fight to force pornography to verify age and consent of people in the, their videos, the people who upload these videos and people trying to access. And in the meantime, raising awareness of all the harms that this industry is causing too. We want to decrease the demand for porn and decrease the accessibility of it, especially to minors. So, But a lot of our work is like campaigning and telling the stories, starting the petitions, getting this out in the culture. And then we want the public to take that outrage to their like representatives and the people in, in uh, politics that represent them and and demand change. So we feel encouraged. We've seen a lot of bills being introduced in the last year to help bring about some means of accountability, some regulations to this industry. It definitely feels like there's still a very long way to go, but just what we saw in those three years and the, like the global virality of Trafficking Hub was so encouraging. It was, I mean, such a a weird year 2020 with the, gl- the global pandemic of of covid and yet this biggest viral campaign that we've ever done and seeing the breakthroughs that happened it was it was a wild year and we're still kind of feeling the the, the impact of of what happened that I year i remember being in a very empty airport in 2020 and looking at some of the periodicals that were for sale some of the magazines from these big news outlets and they were all saying things like pornography is an epidemic. And these weren't Christian magazines by any means. Uh-huh. They were saying yeah. it's harmful not only to the people who could be exploited therein, but it shapes our sexual desires and it can actually change really the fabric of our mind. It can change things chemically for us. And just to have people who have clout say, this isn't good. This there's no such thing as free porn. There is someone being exploited. There is someone being groomed, whether it's the person who is groomed in the actual video, because just because someone's smiling doesn't mean that they necessarily want to be there, or it's the viewer being groomed and changed and shaped. 
And so with yeah. what you do, I'm just, I'm so thankful for your work and just how you all have led really this beautiful movement that so many people are jumping in on. And I love how you had experienced this delay. Like what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, you experienced this sense of deferment, this delay of your passions, but God met you and just gave you what you desired. But it's almost as if you had to experience the almost loss of it to truly appreciate what he's given you. Would you agree with that? For sure. And I think that's the kindness of God in the way he even leads us. Like he's such a good father and he knows that if a father completely spoils their child and gives them everything they ever want, that that's actually going to ruin their child. And so a good father thinks about ways that they can, speaking this as as a non-parent, but I would imagine you're wanting ultimately your child to be set up for success and their character to be formed and doing that in like a loving way, but allowing them to go through things that bring like a lifetime of fruit and an eternity of fruit from that. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, it doesn't mean that there's not seasons of hardship ahead. I'm not like, oh, those first three years were rough and now the rest <laughs> now of everything's been great. life is piece of cake. <laughs> but I just, I've learned to deeply trust in his leadership always. And it's like this, my spiritual spine is, he is good. He cares for me. He loves me. And he's, he's out to, not to harm me, but to, to prosper me and just like a, a loving father. And I had the, the privilege of having an amazing father who I'm very close with. And I think that can't, you can project your images onto God for good or for bad of your, your earthly fathers or father figures. But I, I know with all my heart that God is, is good. And in our final moments, I would love for you to kind of maybe give us some encouragement, give some co- encouragement to those who may, as, as you've been talking and as we've been having this conversation, realize, oh man, like I, I use pornography and I didn't know. Yeah. How would you encourage them or challenge them? Yeah. Well, I think the the tragic reality right now is that the the age of exposure to porn is getting younger and younger and it's between kind of nine and 11 years old. But I've met many people who were exposed even younger or parents whose children have been exposed younger. And so there's never been an age where the first time exposure has been younger, the accessibility is easier and Mm -hmm. the content is as graphic and hardcore as it is. And I feel like even for those who are recovering porn addicts, it's like, well, firstly, if you were exposed to porn underage, it was the equivalent of a big porn drug dealer injecting you with heroin in the elementary playground. And you've developed a, an addiction to something that was beyond your control. You were exposed to it. You weren't even seeking it out. Your brain and body didn't understand what was happening. So I feel deep compassion and deep anger on behalf of any child, anyone under the age of 18 who was exposed to porn, that was a form of neurological assault on you. And so I would want to encourage anyone like you should feel anger at what this industry Mm. tried to steal from you because the porn industry, they could put age verification markers, but they choose not to because they know that so much of their traffic comes from minors and traffic is money. So so to feel a sense of outrage at this industry and the, the the big porn who is full of greed and full of motivation to have lifestyle, lifetime subscribers of children it is genuinely what I believe. I think that when you're a recovering porn addict, it can sometimes feel like the equivalent of you're a recovering alcoholic mm-hmm. who's forced to carry a bottle of whiskey in their pocket every day because the accessibility of, of smartphones on porn. And so... Is something that you have to connect with the utter horror and exploitation of porn. You have to humanize the people in it. You have to be like, if I would not be okay with my wife or daughter or mother being behind the screen, then I should not be coming into any form of agreement with this. And to have this deep resolve of, I'm going to be someone who has no agreement to this industry. I'm not an industry that is marketing and fueling and funding sex trafficking is like, I will not have any 
participation in this. And it has to be a resolve that you, you sign up for regularly, I believe, and people just really needing like safe friends and accountability and people that they can bring this into the light and walk alongside with, where there's no mm-hmm. shame, whether that's a therapist, a friend, an accountability partner, someone that they can check in on, not just after the effect of, hey, bro, I'm really like, sorry to tell you, I just messed up again. But when they're even feeling that moment of temptation, they have a person that they call and they're like, well, someone said to me recently, I know what all my vulnerabilities are and triggers are. And so when I'm like going to be, by myself in a hotel for a few days. And like, when, when I'm possibly vulnerable, I need to be like, have a plan of even making sure that I don't fall into that. And so, oh, I just have, I have deep compassion because I think like someone who's been an alcoholic, they, they have to be really firm of like, I can't just go to a party and have a couple of beers anymore because of my past. It's like my body still remembers how that House. And you know, for some recovering alcoholics, they are able to get to a point where they can drink in moderation. But for those who are coming out of porn addiction, it's like for the rest of your life, you will have to be aware that this thing is ready to like devour you and take you right back into that dark place of shame. And one of the main reasons I hate pornography as much as I do is because I believe it keeps people in this place of shame and like holds them back from their full truest calling and the enemy wants nothing better than to keep people in shame, to keep people from um, coming to God or living a whole-hearted life in community. And so I, I hate what porn does to people. I hate the intent of some in this industry that dehumanize people and do not care about people. And for anyone who is struggling with an addiction to it, I, I think the first step is always like acknowledging that you even have an issue and that it's something that you're not able to just completely cut out of your life. And then Mm -hmm. thinking through what do I need to do to take those steps to permanently cut this out of my life, but knowing it is completely possible and that people can go decades without watching porn. If if you have that deep resolve and we put together a whole website full of resources, some of the best, most practical tools and filters and organizations and individuals. So anyone who is like, I need help. I don't know where to start. Please check out the Extra Cry website for those resources. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.